This Week in Health Innovation is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, or innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your host today. My guest is Bob Matthews, President and CEO of MetaSync, a leading management and solutions provider, building an engaged network of medical group senior leadership, pursuing better outcomes via analytics, planning, and sustainable solutions. Bob is a veteran healthcare executive with extensive experience as executive director of three medical groups for over 13 years. During his tenure, the groups expanded physicians threefold, increasing payer contracts by more than 45%, and developed and deployed chronic disease management programs that led the nation in outcome results. He helped to greatly enhance medical group financial performance, resulting in increased physician compensation. Prior to MetaSync, Bob had a national healthcare consultation practice with leading medical groups, hospitals, and insurance companies focused on medical group formation, development, and performance. So, Bob, welcome to This Week in Health Innovation. Hi, Greg. It's great to be here. I look forward to our conversation. We just heard a thumbnail of your bio. As someone who's been in the theater for a while, give us your perspective on what's happening in the transition to at-risk or value-based healthcare initiatives. But before you begin... Set the table here for those of us who may not be tracking the industry as closely as some. Please start with a working definition of both. For instance, what types of arrangements might be included in each bucket, or are they different labels for essentially the same industry-wide goals? Then please elaborate on the relative strength, if you will, of their resilience in challenging times. For instance, are risk-bearing ventures, at least those operating under partial or global risk arrangements, faring better or worse than their risk-averse peers? Okay, so that's a, that's a pretty good and pretty big question. So I um, differentiate value as one category, and my simple definition is that value-based payment, uh, because all of this really addresses the question of how people are paid, is payment that's premised on some measure or measures of quality, cost effectiveness, total cost of care, safety, or another outcome. And I contrast value in that sense against the traditional fee-for-service model in which you got paid purely based on the number of services times whatever the negotiated or determined price, whether you did a good job or a bad job and it was done appropriately or poorly or your patient uh, cost a lot or cost a little. So value in general is payment contingent on some measure of cost and quality and safety. The difference between value and risk is that some value contracts are what they call upside only. So in other words, I'll give you extra money if you do a really good job, but I don't take any money away if you do a poor job. Whereas other contracts have a risk, meaning that the provider 
could lose revenue based on having not met whatever the performance dimensions or characteristics that were negotiated. The ultimate risk, I suppose you could say, would be global capitation. Here's a bucket of money. If you meet your quality and outcomes, you know, you might get some more money. And if you spend more money than you've got in your bucket, that comes out of your pocket. But there's myriad, perhaps infinite, varieties of uh, value and risk uh, contracts that are out there in healthcare delivery. Now, the second question, it gets to the whole issue of whether and to what extent uh, this is happening. So I think if you go back to the early days after Obamacare, the expectation of many of us was that we were going to have a large proportion of value in our uh, contract relationships. Really, I think that in many instances, this shift has stalled. So the, the, the ultimate, the question that, we're, uh, that you then ask is, where is this? So what we see today is that there is, I think, a real pause that has occurred in this transition. The extent or to many large health systems are not anxious to get into value type uh, contracts or arrangements, particularly not interested in risk. Some entities are willing to proceed. Probably the most notable are the Medicare Advantage contracts in which either a medical group or health system or IPA takes total uh, global risk. You see a con continuation of value on uh, in the West Coast and in the LA area with some in Nevada and a few other places. But if you take the whole country as a whole, I would not say there's been a tremendous advance away from fee-for-service. And where there is an advance, often the amounts of money in question and the scope of the value focus is pretty small. And what I think is happening as a result of that is that when you don't have a large exposure of either penalty or reward in your value contracts, you tend not to spend as much time, energy, or effort doing that kind of work. And if I understand employers and uh, government people, they're frustrated that we're not more aggressively pushing towards better performance and a, and a financial system that supports better performance. Got it. Even before the disruptive impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on U.S. healthcare operations, both at the health system and medical group or physician organization level, the primary care versus specialty care pay equity debate has long waged on. Given the range of innovation initiatives we're seeing and the known stressors, what can you tell us about the interaction between various primary care models and the shift towards value? So there's really a couple questions there, and and I think you're right to ask it that way because their questions are interlinked. Let me, I'll, I'll give a couple examples. Take primary care versus specialty first off. I think in the COVID experience, primary care has been hit pretty hard, but specialty care, depend, especially surgical care, was sort of torpedoed and, you know, they couldn't do hips and knees and many of the heart procedures, etc. So it'll be interesting to see whether entities that were historically resistant to going into uh, away from a fee-based will be more interested in in an upfront payment model after COVID. It's pretty early to tell and, you know, we're still trying to figure this out. But that's one potential effect that 
entities which have been opposed to getting into value or resistant to getting into value may decide, hmm, maybe having these uh, revenue dollars on a per-person-per-month basis would be a better thing. The second question gets to your point about specialties versus primary care fighting for resources. It is rumored that within the next few weeks, CMS is going to change the uh, way that it recognizes the distinction between what are called E&M or evaluation and management codes. So those are the thinking. Somebody goes into a doctor's office and the doctor talks to them and looks at their labs and writes prescriptions. There's no procedure. Historically, it's been felt by many that the procedures paid very well and the time spent with doctors and patients in the exam room paid considerably less. It is rumored that within a few weeks, they're not only going to change the distinctions between the different levels of E&M code, but they're going to add more dollars to office codes. Because CMS has to be revenue neutral, if they want to add money to the E&M codes, they're going to have to take it away from the procedure codes. And that will set off a world war because the specialty societies on the surgical side, on surgical side and some of the hospital systems are going to want the money to stay in the procedures and the primary care doctors and some of the cognitive medical specialists like rheumatology are going to want more money. So that will be interesting to see what CMS does. That will have to get published shortly because there's a whole set of federal requirements to make a change on January 1st. You have to go through uh, publication and review periods and all that kind of stuff. Then the question is, the, the third part of your question, which I think is really important, is what is the value of primary care versus specialty care in a fee-for-service? Well, that's pretty obvious. If you're a health system, specialty care, everything specialists do and procedures do generates a lot more money than what a primary care or cognitive specialist does. So primary care visits sell for just around 100 bucks a piece. If you go into a hospital, there's nothing that goes for $100 except what's in the cafeteria and in the gift shop, maybe parking. So they, in a fee world, primary care is underappreciated and is underfunded. And uh, the money is, you know, for a large health system with hospitals and diagnostic centers and all of that, is going to happen in the facility and in the procedure side. If you're in a upfront payment, globally capitated world, you cannot win unless you have a very high-performing primary care service. So it doesn't mean you don't need people who can do a cabbage surgery or a colonoscopy or, you know, uh, replace a knee. You do need those things. But in a upfront payment model, it becomes very important that you more effectively provide care to stop bad events from happening. You, want, you need the blood pressures to be reduced. You need blood sugars in diabetics to be reduced. You need cholesterol to be reduced. You need heart failure that's under good control, and that's a medication procedure. You need uh, COPD that's under good control, et cetera, and it's, it's essential. So in the current world, specialty make more money for themselves, and they make more money for their systems. And if we do go to some sort of significant value risk-based world, primary care will become 
very much more important. Makes a lot of sense. We've been in an innovation economy mindset principally driven by tech for a while now, perhaps 10 or so years, yet the movement to value in any of its forms has been slow. Some would say glacial. So let's dive a little deeper into the change-resistant nature of our complex and often misaligned healthcare delivery and financing paradigms including how COVID-19 is impacting primary care physicians, specialists, health systems, and health plans. What are the major drivers here, and are their interests aligned? One of the reasons why I think progress has slowed in the shift is that the two major forces in healthcare today uh, outside of government are the large delivery systems. You know that more and more hospitals have bought other hospitals and they have a whole range of services and they have five, three, five, seven hundred thousand or seven hundred docs, a thousand docs. And then there's the large insurance companies and you have the blues and the big five. It would seem to me that neither of them is anxious to see the world change from its current model. And and the reason is that they're making money in today's current model. So why would they want? So where's the impetus to change come from? Well, ultimately, the customer here are uh, patients, and and significantly in America now, they're employers who provide health benefits, and the government who also buy health benefits uh, for seniors, uh, for the very poor, etc. So, we're at a, if I look for change, I don't think it's going to come from health hospital system leaders, and I don't think it's going to come from uh, big insurance companies. I think the change, impetus for change comes from uh, people who are paying the bill. And so what we know is that today we're going to spend $4 trillion this year. That was pre-COVID. I don't know what COVID on health care. Uh, according to CMS, we'll be at $6 trillion a year within six years. So we're going to go from $4 trillion a year of health care to six. If you divide out today's cost, it's about $12,000 per man, woman, and child in America. I just talked to a gentleman from Connecticut yesterday who was telling me that if an employer buys a family health benefit program for uh, or insurance product in Connecticut, it's $35,000 per family. I'm in Ohio, and when I Medisync buys, it's around $25,000 per family. Now, I can get that down by putting uh, huge amounts of uh, um, deductibles and other things on, but the point is we're at a point where increasingly the people who can't afford health care are American employers and the government and the patients themselves. So I don't know. We're not a country that seems all that well able to make big decisions. We have been sort of stuck on this for a while, but we have a terrible, terrible cost problem. And I don't think you can possibly get the cost of health care down on a fee-for-service or pay-by-the-piece basis because the incentive, there are two incentives in today's world. One is to do more pieces, and the other is to charge as much as you possibly can for them. So the major forces in healthcare delivery today are trying to drive the cost of health care up, and they're good at it. It's working. So, uh, and I, I don't, I think there's a lot of, and I'm not trying to take cheap pot shots at them, but, you know, the system isn't at a present moment. So the shift towards the concept of value is basically trying to move American healthcare 
onto a purchase basis that's common in every other area. In cars or computers or houses, you kind of, the more quality and uh, you put in, the more you know you justify your price. And we do not have that link in, in healthcare today. So we lead medical groups where they actually can bring the total cost of care down. Our, we have evidence, strong evidence from that the groups that we're managing are able to bring health care in that's better quality health care for 10 to 20% less than the other providers in our market. And these are small, 50 or so doctor independent medical groups. And so I'm in this amazing position where I want to sell better product at a lower price, and the system that's out there doesn't really want to help me do that. There's nobody that... It's, it's a very frustrating position, but we're working at it, and uh, it's clearly possible. There's a lot of momentum to stay with fee-for-service and pay by the piece, but at the end of the day, I don't think we can cover Americans at this, in this manner for very much longer. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to This Week in Health Innovation. My guest is Bob Matthews, President and CEO of Medisync, a management and solutions provider building an engaged network of medical group senior leadership pursuing better outcomes by analytics, planning, and sustainable solutions. Hmm, that sounds like a failed business model, so do we need a new one? Well, this gets into an interesting uh, uh, historical point. If you go back to, let's just say, 1990, there were some ways that a large insurance company could reasonably improve the cost and quality of care. As a famous example, it was pretty common in a few markets where they would put people in hospitals. In those days, beds or people in hospitals were paid by the overnight, not by the procedure. And they would challenge people who didn't need to be in the hospital. And you'd saw bed days per thousand go from 700 to 200 or whatever. But ever since 19, the mid-1990s, the need to improve health care has to occur inside healthcare delivery. The model that we see out there for, in many instances for better, better costs and better quality is let's have the system do what it does and doctors do what they do, and then we'll pay other people to go through and find all the mistakes and, fi- and fix them. And what they learned in every other business and every other industry was, no, you do it right the first time, and then you don't have to have so many people go through and find the mistakes and fix them. And so, to my mind, and this is the reason why I got into this business, the idea of saying, let's have visits where the blood pressure is better controlled and uh, diabetes is better controlled. And these are 75% of America's health spend goes towards chronic disease and its sequelae. So if you don't get blood pressure down, people have more strokes, they have more heart attacks, they hurt their kidneys, on and on and on. Bad things happen, and they're all expensive. If you do get their blood pressure down, then A, the patient lives longer and healthier. They don't have these compromising, terrible events, which are, you know, not enjoyable. And we don't have to pay to have so many heart procedures and uh, MIs and strokes and all of those things. So the point to you is I don't know what United or Aetna can do to make our medical group provide better cost or quality care. I know what we can do, but many of the things that insurance companies could have done 20 or 30 years ago to bring down, those we've already done those. 
So it's really not in their purview. They tell the employers, oh, we're the ones who guarantee cost and quality. No, cost and quality happens in doctors' offices and hospitals and all that inside. If we, they can try to put brakes on how much money gets wasted, but even that, they're not very effective at it. So I don't know, you know, United or Aetna uh, or the other large insurers are starting to sort of admit this by saying, well, we'll go over on the provider side and we'll do the care. Well, if you're going to get better and cheaper cost health care, it's going to be on the provider side. And if they think they can do that, Opta, you know, United has Optum and uh, Aetna has CVS uh, now. Um, and then we'll see how well they do. But as an insurance entity, really what United or Aetna or Anthem do is pretty similar to what Visa does. They collect all the they they collect all the claims, sort them out, and then attribute them back to an original payer. And of course, in many states, uh, an awful lot of people aren't insured anymore; they're self-funded, and so this is really. Uh, you know, uh, United is, or Aetna or whatever has an ASO business as much as anything. And where do you see this going? I think it's very clear that with potentially some exceptions, the fee world, it, the full fee side will probably have to give way. I just, it, it, first off, economically, it doesn't make any sense to pay people, I would argue, more money for doing a bad job than for doing a good job. So in order for us to do a better job, we had to go out and get Six Sigma and lean experts and do technologies and rethink our processes and all of that. And that cost us money. So if you improve today and you're getting paid by the piece, it probably takes more money to produce your, your outcome and there is no additional revenue. So why would you, you know, I, I've literally been challenged by somebody from a famous company when I describe some of our quality work as, why did you do it? They're not going to pay you for it. So we need to switch that around to where they do. And the question is whether we're going to have a, you know, kind of meandering, uh, unfocused, stumbling uh, shift in our delivery system payment models to a more incisive sort of shift. I don't know the answer to that. We're As a country, we seem to be pretty tied up in knots. We can't even agree we need to wear masks during a pandemic. So that's a pretty, you know, I don't know where we're going. But I, in the long writing of history, uh, at some point, I don't think fee business is going to be a, a viable business. And, and now the question is that a two-year or a five-year or a 10-year or a 20-year. And I have had hospital administrators be pretty cynical and say, well, you know, it may go that way, but I'm going to make the last dollar out of today's world before I switch. We'll just have to wait and see how this plays out. Got it. Now let's talk about what you're doing at Medicine. Well, so we have really uh, several different companies uh, inside. We're all uh, medical group focused. We actually are the management partners for some medical groups, which we use as laboratories. And that's today in Southwest Ohio, in Cincinnati, and Dayton, Ohio. And we use those groups with whom we partner. We, we provide all of their management services, all of their infrastructure, and there are laboratories. What we're launching now, which we're very excited, we've done work for uh, since 2003 uh, to generate the best chronic disease outcomes in the nation. And we have a medical group that has way over 90% blood pressure control, for example, across all blood pressure patients. 
our inner city office location approaching 90% blood pressure controlled. And so we have, over years, figured out how can we help other medical groups. And we're now uh, producing an AI solution, which we're very excited about, that helps every doctor in America become a superstar when treating chronic diseases. And as I go back, the Commonwealth Fund says 60, or 75% of everything we spend in, is on chronic diseases and their sequelae. CMS will tell you, for them, it's 90%. So what's the difference? In the big system, you have built-in good costs like childbirth and vaccinations. When you get to Medicare, more and more of the budget is just going after disease. So we, we know how to do a really good job, and that footprint is more of a national. We have about, uh, when, when we sell some of our innovations to other medical groups, we have about 180 groups that have around the country that have bought things from us, and they're everywhere from the West Coast to the far, far tip of uh, Maine even uh, to include Alaska. I don't think we've ever done anything in Hawaii, but I have many salespeople who are willing to go there. Are you optimistic? Uh, what's going to drive success? I was a big believer when I started, and I remain a big believer today, that the medical group is a critical component to the success of the entire healthcare venture. And by medical group, I don't just mean the doctors in their buildings. I mean the work, particularly I'm a we work on both sides, especially in primary care, but I'm very devoted to primary care. Primary care that works well is less expensive on an across-the-board basis, uh, better care, longer lives, fewer bad things happen to people. And I'm a big believer in that. We're all in on medical groups and, and, and primary care in particular. And finally, how about your near-term prospects for growth? Well, we're just bringing, we were going to launch in a big way our, this AI solution for chronic disease management this spring in 2020. And, of course, then the little thing called COVID-19 came along, and we had speaking spots at some of the big national meetings. Uh, we think that the growth of the company organically is on, particularly on the AI solution. What we have figured that's different from most people is that the complexity of managing the medications and chronic diseases. In our heart failure module, for example, there are 800 million permutations. So you've got to have a computer to help you with that. No primary care doctor or even uh, very few heart failure specialists can do that in their head. We've got to a place in American medicine where what we know is no longer manageable just from memory and, you know, smart people. And so that's what we think is our major avenue to growth in the future. Interestingly different foci here, but all connected around day-to-day -day medical practice. And that is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Bob Matthews, President and CEO of MediSync, for his insights during this still unfolding COVID-19 pandemic. For more information on Bob and MediSync's work in the value-based healthcare economy, go to www.medisync.com. For This Week in Health Innovation, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe. We are in this together and we will get through this together if we toe the line on social distancing, proper basic hygiene, and by all means, please wear those masks when in public. Bye now.